And we have, all this autumn, decided that people will be flourishing as they are blessed by God. And we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and the way the Sermon on the Mount starts is with eight different blessed by God moments. We want to share with you one of those today because it's counterintuitive that you would flourish when you are blessed by God this way. So listen as your sisters and brothers read God's holy word. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who weep over their regrets. Blessed are those who have had to let go of an imagined future, of hopes and dreams that may never be realized. Blessed are those who have buried loved ones, for they will be taken into Jesus' arms and comforted. For they will be taken into Jesus' arms. For they will be taken into Jesus' arms. For they will be taken into Jesus' arms and comforted. One of the blessings that Jesus declares is Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who weep for they will be taken into Jesus' arms and comforted. This is, uh, from my perspective, uh, the deep end of the pool spiritually. I say that because I had another small men's group, and uh, we met on Tuesday mornings, and these guys were great at having breakfast together and weak at studying the Scriptures together. Uh, I I started to call them... uh, mostly kidding, the shallow group, because they wanted to stay in the shallow end of the pool. And then I left to start another group, and the shallow group had a friend of theirs who was part of the group who had a brain tumor, and who as a result of that tumor came to Christ, and as a result of his sickness was surrounded by the guys in this group, and as a result of his death, they moved from the shallow group to the deep end of the pool. And they started to explore what good it could possibly mean that we are blessed when we are soul-sad, sick to death. There is a New Testament scholar, Bob Gulick. He wrote a book called The Sermon on the Mount. He actually was the teaching pastor over at Colonial Church before he went to Fuller Seminary. And, And Bob talked in his book about blessed are those who mourn, he said, mourning cannot be limited to sorrow for one's sins. Mourning is not only grief surrounding death. And he quotes Isaiah 61, as we did in our call to worship, and says, for those who mourn, it is deep grief for all the hopeless and helpless and the brokenhearted who can feel stuck in the valley of the shadow when everybody else is hearing the music of the carnival. I love that image. They feel stuck in the valley of the shadow when everyone else is hearing the music of the carnival. Blessed are those who mourn. It's one of the few things that are universal. Sooner or later, 
into every life, grief will come. It will happen, and then the key will be how will we respond? Will we be blessed, or will we curse God and roll over and lose our faith? What will, what will happen with us? One of the reasons that Shakespeare is so popular, and I know it's hard to believe Shakespeare is very popular, is because he faced this straight on. One of his best plays is the tragedy, King Lear, the one whose children abandon him and who dies out on the moor naked, and then the last lines of the play are a reckoning, where the narrator says, the weight of this sad time we must obey. Speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. So this morning, we would like to speak the whole truth, not just the sweet by and by hope of the future, and not just the despair of the moment. We want to see what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are those who mourn. It's a paradox, isn't it? Blessed are those who are happy. That makes sense. Blessed are those who mourn is a paradox. G.K. Chesterton once said that a paradox is truth that stands on its head, yelling for attention. It's truth turned upside down so that you have to turn to see it. Jesus is telling a paradox. Jesus does not say, don't mourn, but rather, blessed are the mourners. Sometimes, I believe as though Christians, Christians get trapped saying, no, 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 don't grieve. God is a God of joy and hope and life and abundance. And there is at the end this great prize for you. Sometimes Christians acted, Christians act as though because God wanted it to be this way, that to grieve, to mourn is a lack of faith missionary couple in China is working hard and faithfully and all of a sudden the dad dies, the father dies. And, and the missionary mom turns to her children and says, no, this is not a time to weep. Don't cry. Don't cry for me. Don't cry for dad. If what we believe is true, he is in heaven alive as ever before and insisted that the burial and the memorial service talk about the gospel's promise and the joy of heaven and no, no tears were to be shed and that seemed to work pretty well. And then six months later, her daughter moved with her grandchildren to Canada and the woman wept until her heart broke open. Yeah, because that wasn't the same. That, that was mourning that comes because we miss them. That's part of mourning, isn't it? We miss the ones we have lost. Jesus doesn't say don't mourn. St. Paul doesn't say that Christians should not grieve. He says that we shouldn't grieve like the people that don't have any hope. In some ways, grief is a compliment. Grief is the shadow of the most precious thing in the world. Grief is the shadow of love when it is lost. And not to grieve implies that you have not really loved. And if you have loved, then not to grieve is to live a lie. C.S. Lewis once said, 
You can keep your heart safe from being broken, but then you can't love anyone. If you want to keep your heart safe, then lock it into a safe and wrap it up warm, and it will be ungrieving, but it will also grow cold, and it will be hard, and it will never know the joy of love. The followers of Jesus will be afflicted by sickness and sorrow, by pain and loss, by death, the same way as the rest of the world. And instead of singing false kumbaya songs about God's presence so that our troubles will disappear, the faith of the followers of Jesus is is to learn to trust God enough to yell at God to lament and and protest. If Jesus weeps at the tomb of his best friend, if the Apostle Paul argues with death and mocks it out loud, we should too. There's a Presbyterian pastor who's been here before, Scott Sauls, and, and Scott looked at this passage and he said, sickness and sorrow and pain and death were not part of the Garden of Eden and they will not be part of God's new world. In other words, they are not natural. Grief is an unwelcome invader, an uninvited guest that weasels his way into the garden of God. And just the same way that the body rejects a virus. How does it do that? It vomits. It has a fever. In the same way, our souls reject Sickness and sorrow and loss and betrayal and pain and death. And we call that mourning. Most of you who have uh, ever heard the Bible have heard of the story of Job. Perhaps the most famous verse in the gospel, in the, in the book of Job, is when this man who has suffered with sores from head to toe and he's reeling from the grief of burying all ten of his children. He stops and says, even though God slay me, yet I will trust him. Everybody goes, oh. But you know what we forget? We forget the very next words that Job speaks. He says, yet, I will trust him, yet I will argue my way face to face with God. And that's part of what mourning has to include. The the Psalms are filled with protest and complaint and sorrow that's expressed as lament. It says David's a man after God's own heart, but this man after a God's own part says, how long, God, will you forget me forever? He says, I have poured out my complaint all night before God. And Jesus is quoting the Psalms when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's part of what makes mourning hard. That not all the time, but at least sometimes, it's not just that I'm hurting, but I feel as though either I have let God down or God has let me down. It should not feel like this. Perhaps the most famous theologian of the last century was C.S. Lewis, And at the end of a long bachelor life, he he marries a woman named Joy, and three years later, she dies of a brutal cancer. And he 
just about, not quite, but just about, loses his faith like a house of cards. In his journal, he writes this. Meanwhile, where's God? When you're happy, if you turn to him with gratitude and praise, you'll be welcomed with open arms. But go to God when your need is desperate, when all other hope is vain. What do you find? A door slams in your face. It's bolted, double bolted. And after that, silence. Why is God so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in our time of trouble? Jesus wept. Jesus got angry. He fought sickness and sorrow and pain and death, and so should we. It is called being honest enough to lament, to not pretend like all is well or you have all the answers So blessed are those who mourn, because those who mourn have felt the brokenness of the world, and they have recognized their inability to build a kingdom here on earth that will last. Sooner or later, my castle crumbles, and I am left looking at this castle of sand, and I realize that I needed to learn to trust God for a different way. Blessed are those who mourn, because only then will they be comforted. Have to understand what comfort means, don't we? According to Bishop Wright, comfort, comforting someone doesn't mean explaining that things aren't as bad as they seem. Sometimes they're a lot worse. Comfort is what happens when someone comes alongside and gives you strength Strength that has been given from God. How that comfort happens is one of the great mysteries of human life and love. And it almost never looks the way that the person giving the comfort thinks it should. I'd probably been here um, four or five years and had gotten to know many of you well, and I spoke once about my father. You would have liked my dad. He was a lot better with people than I am. And, uh, and people who met him thought that we were lucky boys, four boys. And dad tried to be a good father. But dad also drank. And from my perspective, worse than that, he, from where I stood, he'd, he'd, he dragged my mom into drinking. And they both became sick to death of alcohol. And worse, I became ashamed of my father, angry and and ashamed. I take absolutely no pride in telling you that I didn't introduce Laura to my parents until after we were engaged because of things that had happened in the past and things that I was afraid would, would happen. And then we got married and I started to see what love could look like. And uh, my dad tried in retirement to, to reach out, and I, because I'm a pastor, I pretended to reach back. But it was always a little bit of this. And even in the last couple of years when my heart started to soften, I was still angry at him. And I, I feel like I did, not, um, I did not bless him. So when Dad died 
21 years and seven months ago, I felt uh, a sense of guilt that I had not loved him the way he deserved to be loved. So anyway, all that, all that to say that for some reason, I can't even remember what the sermon was about, for some reason I told that part of my story and afterwards, out, out in, I don't even know what room we were using back then, afterwards, uh, a man came up who'd been here for several years, had not joined the church, and he said, John, I, I just got to tell you, I think you are, you are a compelling speaker. And I have to tell you, that makes absolutely no difference to me. I, I'm, I'm not impressed at all. But today... When you talked about your father today was the day that you became my pastor. Because I felt like we were sitting on the bench together. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted in unexpected ways, I think. Rick and Kay Warren, you know, purpose-filled life, great ministry, super people, had a son who committed suicide, and Rick says, every single morning I wake up and I think about my son, and I'm sure that life will never be the same. And Kay said, yeah, but it's the broken trees that bear the fruit, the fruit that other people can share. The alternative to suffering is a cozy, charmed, comfy life, but the cost of a charmed, cozy life is that it's awfully shallow. It leaves us unprepared for when the day of our grief comes or when the person who is sitting next to us goes into the valley. And that's why Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted not by people who have it together but by people who don't. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. I would like to think that many of you have been afflicted with sorrow and have found comfort and that others who mourn are comforted because you share that with them. I got to tell you this, I hate it. I hate it when people come up to the grieving and say, oh, this is God's will, we'll just have to discover what this is about. Oh, oh, God had a better plan. Oh, you know, God... God comforts us with the comfort that we receive. I think that that is spiritual malpractice because people do not need a sermon at that point. They need someone to sit down with them. And so quietly and sometimes even secretly when I come and sit next to somebody who's in the middle of a season of sickness or sorrow or pain or death, I come and just be with them, and, and I resist the urge to preach to them, but I pray for them constantly, because I believe that somehow in your presence, 
somehow is the presence of Jesus, the Comforter. And he is the Comforter through people who have known grief. I'm, um, I'm at this place where I, I think back, and um, one of my good friends was a pastor like me, only he was good. And uh, so I'm saying that because he's a pastor, and he then is asked to be the president of Princeton Seminary, Craig Barnes. He's a good friend. And, and I remember talking to him and uh, saying, so what? Do you think there's anything you're going to miss? I got it. Can I just tell you, just between you and me, don't tell anybody, that uh, I will not miss my 31st annual meeting. I'm just saying. <laughs> I will not miss personnel or finance committee meetings. And I turned to Craig and I said, what, what will you miss? And without missing a beat, he says, you know what I'll miss? I'll miss funerals. I'll miss standing at the grave with a family because at the graveside, nobody cares what you're wearing. At the graveside, there are no right words if you're grieving. I, I love looking at the families who are in the middle of grief and saying, if you've lost your faith, let me help you find it. Let me hold your doubt and your pain, and let's walk together. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted by the grace of God through the people of God. We are privileged each All Saints Day to share in the Lord's Supper, and we do so saying each time that we're not here alone. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses we cannot see. And they feast with us. There is another Christ Presbyterian church in Nashville. And every time that they serve the Lord's table, they recite together the mystery of faith. You know, the, the, have you ever heard of that? What is the mystery of faith? Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. There is the mystery of faith. And they say that because they need to be reminded when they come to this table, if Christ has not risen from the dead then we are without hope. And to end with Shakespeare again, like Macbeth, life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. We gather at this table because we believe that heart-wrenching grief and mourning is the middle chapter of the story. It is not the last chapter of the story. The key is how the story will end, not what we're reading today. And so together, they recite the mystery of faith. Brothers and sisters, what is the mystery of faith for you? Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared like a bride dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with people. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them. And then it becomes about us. 
and God will wipe every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more, neither mourning nor crying nor pain, for they have all passed away, and the one seated on the throne, the one seated on the throne has stood on the cross and says, Behold, I'm making everything new again. Trust it. This is true. When we gather around this table, too often we don't think about the idea that Jesus is about to die. And he takes the bread and he blesses it and he said, this, this is my body broken for you and this cup is the blood of a new sacrament that will forgive your sins. When you eat this bread and drink from this cup, you proclaim my death until I come again. This is a feast for all those of us who have sat in grief or sat with others as they mourn.